Thanks, guys. Let the youth head out as we take our seats. It feels really good to be back, and I haven't spoken here for a long, long time, uh, and it feels great to be back, and um, whether you agree with that or not, I think it's great to be back for me. Uh, a few weeks ago, probably, well, probably six, seven weeks ago, uh, just before I was going to head out to America for that time, I've been away for three weeks in America. It was part of me being here 10 years, so it was a little bit of a mini sabbatical. A friend of mine gave me a book, and um, I hadn't heard of the book before, and it's basically called Different Eyes, The Art of Living Beautifully. And I've got to be honest, when I heard the title, I went, ugh. I didn't say that to my friends. I said, oh, thank you very much. The Art of Living Beautifully, because it sounds way too girly and effeminate. And also, and also, I was going away to America to think about some big questions for me. I wanted to have some time and space to talk to God about issues of loss in my own life, just over a year since my father died, putting our youngest son into residential care, you know, and other things as well. Uh, and uh, other, other areas of loss. And so for me, the art of living beautifully seemed a million miles away. I wanted to go and say, God, how do I survive? Do you know what I mean? Like that, you know, how, how do I actually get through? How do I, those kind of questions really. And I have to say, I've read the book and it's a brilliant book. I don't agree with everything in the book. Uh, there's some very interesting stuff on modern ethical dilemmas like euthanasia and homosexuality. But there's a whole host of stuff here about what it means to really follow Jesus and to live a beautiful life. And it coincided with a lot of stuff that God has been doing in my life in the States and before and since. And a lot of questions that I've been asking that I want to share with you over these next four weeks. Um, you see, the art of living beautifully, you see, I know immediately some people who have heard the title are switching off. And because you're saying, do you know what, I, it's all I can do just to get up in the morning and get through a day and get in the bed at the night. Do you know, sometimes that is living beautifully. How do you know, sometimes faith is not always about flying, okay, sometimes it's about running, sometimes it's about walking, sometimes it's crawling, but it's beautiful if it's faith in God's sight. And um, I want to just kind of open this up with you a little bit today, um, you know, Faith and life is more of an art form than a science. Did you know that? And for those of you who are scientific, it is scientific as well. Okay, so don't say, ooh, it is scientific as well. But faith is much more an art than a science. And it's much more about um, artistic things and trying to understand deeper things than it is about his seven steps to faith. It's much more of an art than a science. And what I'm going to do over the next four weeks to try and look at this, we're going to use different art forms. So we're going to be looking at pictures. We're going to be looking at jazz music. We're going to be looking at dance. We're going to be looking at all kinds of art forms to try and understand what faith lived beautifully looks like. And today we're looking at the power of stories. We're looking at stories. If your life was a story, what would it be about? What would be the themes what would be the plot? What would be the subplot? And I was, I've been thinking quite a little bit about story in my own life. When uh, the first conference that I was at in the States, a guy called Francis Chan, who some of you may have heard of, um, he like, gave a throwaway question. And the question was this. He said, does your life, does your life make sense if it was in this book? Quite an interesting question. In other words, if the story of your life was written in the Bible, would it connect? Would it look like it belonged here? Or would it actually 
look weird and out of place. And I was reading through the book of Acts as my devotions while I was away. So in my mind, I was saying, oh, that's interesting. So does my life, the life of Leon, does it look, sounds like a film, doesn't it? The life of Leon. Does it look, if it was in the book of Acts, would it belong? Or would it look weird and disconnected? You see, because I wonder how much of our faith in the Western world, in the first world, the developed world, just totally is disconnected if it was in this book. I wonder how many of the early Christians would recognise our faith. I wonder if they would recognise why Christians leave churches because the music's too loud and they've got no friends. Does that connect with what you read in the New Testament? Or has our faith become so safe and predictable and sanitised that actually the early church or people in the Bible would say, what? Don't even understand that. And it's really haunting me, this question, if I can use that word. It's really exercising my thinking. And while I was, so that was at the start of my three weeks away. Then as the, as the kind of uh, trip progressed, that question kept coming back to me. And on one of the days when we were in Atlanta, I had the opportunity and privilege to go downtown Atlanta and spend half a day at the Martin Luther King Center. You all know who Martin Luther King was, yeah? And I have to say, again, just rehearsed, just re-going over the story of his life and went to the house where he was born and the church that he pastored with his father and a museum where we watched films and read quotes and looked at, you know, and went to the tomb of him and his wife and et cetera, et cetera. And realizing again that all that he did was motivated out of his faith in Jesus. And all of the civil rights movements were started and birthed out of churches. They were all led by Christian leaders. Every time they gathered to pray, every time they gathered to march and to walk, they gathered in a church and they marched out out of the church into the world and they changed the world. And I thought his story fits in here. And he lost his life for it. And then towards the end of the week, I was sitting in a coffee shop, thinking about this story again, journaling as I do and waiting to go to another church. Um, we were just looking at different churches. This was in Chicago. And um, as I was journeying and thinking about, does my life make sense in this book? I had an email on my phone from uh, a friend in Albania, from David. You know David Panoya in Albania. They've been here. They came here last year. And he told me that a guy that I know, a pastor called Tani, had been shot and murdered and killed just that weekend. Many of you know the story I've told you before. I met Tani and his wife, Eleanor, about four years ago. Tani's uncle was involved in a blood feud situation in northern Albania where his uncle had shot somebody else in self-defense but because he'd shot him and killed him and it shot him in the face, the family of the person he'd shot because they're under this blood feud said, right, because it's a double disgrace, we're going to kill two people from your family. The uncle who'd shot this guy uh, had no sons, had no kids. So they, so they go to, to somebody else in the family. So all of the men in Tani's family went into hiding. And for the last five years, Tani and his wife and two little kids have been pastoring a church in the north of Albania and going into hiding at various times. There's been lots of attempts on their life. In recent times, they, they, they thought that it was too dangerous and they tried, to, they tried to settle here in England, down in Kent, in Maidstone. And I've kept in contact with them and prayed for them and talked with them. And then just about three or four weeks ago, what happened is that... Uh, this is, I just... just, just blows my mind really. What happened is that he was in the, in the house of uh, David and Valbona in Duras and David said to Tani, listen, you, you were starting to settle in England and it was safe there. Why have you come back to Albania? And this is what Tani said, because God told me to stop hiding. And he said to Tani, he said, because, cause, and God said to him, because your life is in my hands, whether you live or die. Within two weeks, he'd been shot and killed. 
He leaves a, a wife of 29 and two kids of nine and seven. Now, I don't understand all that. And some people have asked, have asked me who know this story, so, so are you saying he, he, he lost his life for his faith? Well, no, and yes. No, because it was part of a blood feud, but yes, because he was only there, because he felt God said, stop hiding, go back to where I called you. Life or death, your life is in my hand. You see, either we believe this stuff or we don't. But the problem is for most of us, we're never in situations where we need to really believe it. And I thought, you know what, his life fits in this book. Then I've been thinking, so does a life that's lived beautifully, does a life story that fits in this book, is it only martyrs like Martin Luther King and like my friend Tanny and like others? Well, no, it clearly isn't. So what does it look like for us to have a life story that fits, that connects with this, and that is a life lived beautifully for God? Well, you know, I think we need a new story. If you look in the book of Exodus in chapter 3, if you've got that, this is an interesting occasion in the, in the life of Moses. You see, Moses, for 40 years, had been safe and predictable. His story was safe. Okay, He was in the desert tending sheep. That was it. And then God came along uh, in the form of a burning bush and kind of got his attention. In Exodus 3, verse 7, he says, Listen, the Lord says, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says to Moses, I know the story of the people. I know their story. I'm involved in their story, and I'm going to change their story. Isn't that good? Fast forward thousands of years to a hillside in Galilee, and Jesus sat on the hillside, surrounded by hundreds of people. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the great teaching about the kingdom of God. He's surrounded by a group of people who have a story. Their story is they are the underclass of first century Palestine. They are the oppressed people. They are the people with no hope and no future. That's their story. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. I'm changing your story. And I want you to know, folks, that if you are a follower of Christ, and if you're not this morning, if you're not, then I really hope you will be. Because if you are, if you do become one, then this, is your, this will be your story, okay? But if you are a follower, you have a story. Peter said once, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, that was your story, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Once you had no hope, but now you have hope. Once you thought you were a victim, but now you're not a victim, you're here to change the world. That's your story. The big question is whose story is really shaping your life and mine? See, we say we follow Christ, but actually, actually, do we live like it? Do we live like it? And I'm wrestling at the moment in my own life with how does my life story reflect the story of God? How is His story shaping my life so that I'm living out His story in my world? You see, our culture is shaped by three things. Consumerism, individualism, and a culture of entitlement. I'm going to speak about that sometime. But we're shaped by that, aren't we? Consumerism, individualism, and a culture of entitlement. And more and more, we as followers of Christ are also shaped by that story. That's why people leave churches when they get fed up. Because they're consumers. 
That's why people don't deal with issues when it comes. Because we have this culture of entitlement. That I should get what I want whenever I want to get it. And so driving in a, in a, in a minibus through uh, Bulgaria last week with friends of mine who've lived... Uh, have had no salary for all of their work in life. They've just served God and just God has met their needs. And we're talking about the global crisis, as you do. And we're talking about pensions and the future. And they're saying, and? Why are we worried about that? Oh, we have, you know, God has always provided for us. Why would he not provide for us in the future? And I think, oh, hang on a minute. That doesn't fit our story. We're all, we're all, we're all on Valium about pensions at the moment. You see, we have to understand what's weird in our story and what's weird in the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Would people in the first century even recognize our faith at all by the way in which we live our lives? And I, just as the culture around us is shaped by consumerism, individualism and a culture of entitlement, our story as believers is also meant to be shaped by three things. And Paul put it beautifully. He said, and these three things that shape your life are the three things that will remain. They are faith and love. They're faith, hope, and love. They are the things. Whether you lose your life for, for, for faith or not is not, you know, that's not the thing. Is your life story shaped by faith, hope, and love? That's what I want to look at this morning, and I'm running out of time. Faith. Let's look at faith. Here's a question Do you believe in God? Do you live like He doesn't exist? You see, sometimes I do. I say I believe in God, but I live like he doesn't exist. And I'll tell you how you can tell it. You can tell it when you face tough times. So when your job's under pressure, do you live like God exists? When you're grieving, when you're hurting, when you are hurt by someone, when you're facing a health crisis, do we say we believe in God, but we live like he doesn't exist? faith. When you read the Hebrews chapter 11, which is this great catalogue of these men and women of faith, listen, if to make it into the, sto- to make your story, to get it into the book, does not mean that your life will turn out wonderfully, does it? Doesn't mean that the outcome will be wonderful. In the Hebrews 11, it says some of them were sawn in two, not a great outcome. Some of them were beheaded, not a fantastic outcome. Some of them were boiled in oil. Some of them were flayed alive. Some of them were fed to to lions and to wild animals. I don't know about you, not a great outcome. But their stories made it because of their faith. Because they had a faith that was passionate. And I want to talk to you about passionate faith this morning. Not scientific um, doubt, says somebody. Not atheism, not pantheism, not agnosticism. That in our day and in our land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. It's quite hard, isn't it? That's the threat to the church. You know that. That's the threat to the church in this country. Is us getting a sense that faith is all about what we want it to be. Consumer. And it's got to meet my need. Individualism. And it needs to provide the things I want it to provide for me and my family, culture of entitlement, rather than being shaped by faith, hope and love. Francis Chan, who kind of first threw this question out that I was listening with, has written a book called Crazy Love. Again, another book I've read. I've read hundreds of books the last few weeks. And in in this, he he, he says a chapter where he gives a profile of a lukewarm Christian. How many of you know there's hot and there's cold, but there's also lukewarm, isn't there? Yeah? Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, we want hot faith, 
you know, not cold faith is when you've kind of totally turned your back on God, but actually, a lot of the time, our faith is a little bit in the middle. The, the scary thing is that what does Jesus say in Revelation about lukewarm? He's going to spit it out of his mouth. And he gives a profile of what a lukewarm Christian is. I'm only giving you the moderate things, all right? I'm saving you this morning from some of the really harsh things that he says. But let, but let me just rattle through these and just see if the Holy Spirit touches your heart in any way, as he has mine in pretty much all of these. See, a lukewarm Christian gives money to charity or the church as long as it doesn't affect their standard of living. After all, God wants a cheerful giver, right? And if my standard of living was affected, I wouldn't be very cheerful. And God wouldn't want that, would he? You see, and I look at that and I think, you know, we've just gone through, and we're going through this sacrificial giving for the third place, and thank you, those of you who are doing it. But I want to say, not all of you are doing that. Not all of you are giving sacrificially. And the way you know it's sacrificially is whether your standard of living is being affected. If it's not, it's not sacrificial. And the reality is we all want to say that we want to be like that, but wanting to be like that and being like that are totally different. A lukewarm Christian will choose what is popular or comfortable over what is right. Last Sunday night, I'm sat in this apartment in Sofia, in capital of Bulgaria, and I've done a whole day. I'd preached at one church in another city. Then I'd been to Sofia and preached in another church. Thought my day was done. And I'm sat having a meal uh, with some friends. And then a whole load of guys in their 20s come in to have a meal together with me. And they're part of a new church plant in the middle of Sofia. And so I'm sat around all these guys and girls. And they're fantastic people. I know many of them very well. And they're asking me questions about what it means to follow Christ as a 20-something-year-old. Okay, in Bulgaria. And they're trendy guys. They're in a band. They've just been rehearsing. One guy's massive dreadlocks. They're very kind of trendy with it. Listen to music, all that kind of stuff. These are the questions that they talk to me about. They say, we know that it's not a sin to drink, and occasionally we will drink. But should we drink when we're out with our non-Christian friends? Because we're really trying to win them for Christ. And we're concerned that this is not a good example. Second question, should we go out? Should I go out with this girl? Because I'm not really sure whether she's the one that God has for me. Or what she really wants. Is that a good thing or not? And I'm sat there thinking, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Are these the kind of questions guys in our culture, in their 20s, would be asking? You see, what we do, do you know what we've done? We've redefined normal, haven't we? So we think normal now looks like this. When actually, when you look at this, this tells you what normal's like. This tells you that the early church was so passionate in love with Christ that they put Christ first, even if it meant their death. And they were so passionate to be holy for him that they would do anything to be holy and set apart and separate, but not so separate and set apart that they didn't want to change their society. They engaged with their society, but they were different. They weren't like their society. They were followers of Christ, but they engaged with their society. That's who they were. We've redefined normal. So normal is, well, if you don't get too drunk, then that's okay. If you don't sleep around too much, for goodness sake, that's not normal. Normal. Christian living needs to be redefined, guys. We need to discover again what it means to be passionately in love with Jesus and to want to live it out. And we've got a massive challenge in our culture because our culture is massively swimming the other way to that. And our young people growing up in this culture, and I see it in Eastern Europe now, these young people are now growing up in a Western culture as well. And it's scaring the heck out of the, the church leaders, and I understand why. Because you're going to end up with a whole group of young people who don't know who they are, who are swimming along with the tide, who think that to get drunk and sleep around is okay because we can come to church the next morning and we can get forgiveness. 
Lukewarm Christians choose what is popular or comfortable over what is right. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories of people who do radical things for Christ, but don't ever do them themselves. Where are the stories? Where are our stories of faith? Where are my stories of faith? You know, when Israel moved out of the wilderness and across the Jordan into the promised land, Joshua got them to set up 12 stones. Remember that? He said, when your, uh, and when your um, descendants come in the future, they're going to look at these and say, what do these mean? And you're going to tell them stories. You know, this, is, this meant that God did this and God did that and God did the other. Where are our stories? Where are our stories? We need stories of faith now, don't we? Today. When was the last time you believed God for something? When was the last time you shared your faith with someone in a difficult situation? When was the last time you stood up for Christ? We need stories now. Lukewarm Christians rarely share our faith or invite people to church. You've got a great opportunity at Christmas. If you can't invite anyone at Christmas, you aren't ever going to do it. Because people are more open. Let's pack this place out. Let's pack this place out with people who don't know Christ. Give them an opportunity to hear the message of faith, hope and love. Lukewarm Christians pacify ourselves by comparisons. Well, all right, I'm not that radical, but I'm not as bad as him. Or I'm not as worldly as them. And we pacify ourselves by comparisons. Lukewarm Christians say we love Jesus, but he's a part of our life, but he's not in control of our life. He's a part. He's just a part. Lukewarm Christians, we love others, but not as much as we love ourselves. Which, by the way, is what the Bible says, isn't it? That we're meant to love other people as we love ourselves. But you see, typically, and this is true of me, typically those people in our circle are people like us. Typically those who love us back or those who we like, or those who we connect with. That's not normal. That is not normal Christian living. Do you know that? It's not normal. And here's the one that really hit me. (laughs) They all hit me, but this one hit me. Lukewarm believers don't really live by faith because our lives are structured in such a way that we never have to. So we've got our savings, and we've got our pension, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we've got everything all locked down. So we never really have to live by faith at all. I wonder how different our lives would be if we stopped believing in God. I heard another story in another book that I was reading of a Chinese pastor. And at the height of persecution in China, he went to prison for his faith. It was five years he was put in prison. And he heard while he was in prison that his wife was going blind. And so he went, said to the authorities, I want to sign a confession that I'm no longer wanting to follow Christ. And he did that and they let him out. The minute he got home, he felt so convicted by the Holy Spirit. He went back to the authorities and said, I lied. I do want to follow Christ. He was given a 30 extra years in prison. That's faith, isn't it? That's faith where Christ is first. I don't know where we've got this whole thing going. Oh yeah, God's first, we say, and then our family, all this stuff. I don't know where we got that from. You know, God is everything. and Everything else flows out of that, doesn't it? And our faith in Christ. It's a little bit like, I wonder if it's a little bit for us, like, imagine if you wanted to join the SAS, okay? And you think, I'm going to join the SAS. I want all the training, but I hate running. All right? So I'm just going to say, look, I want to join. I want to be fully fledged up member. I want to do all that stuff. I want to shoot a gun. I want to do all that spy spook stuff. I just don't want to run. Is that all right? Ridiculous. And I wonder when we look at faith, whether that's how we do it. We say, well, I really love that and I really love that. I just don't want to do that bit there. Which actually is the bit that costs us. 
And you know what? I want to say on faith, I want my life story to be characterized by a passionate faith, don't you? Not a lukewarm faith. This has just challenged the heck out of me. To say, oh, I'm, I lead a church and say, this is what I do. Do you know what I mean? I'm called to do. And yet, where am I believing God? Where's my faith? Where is my passion? I get so hurt, so easy. I get so fed up so quickly. Do you know what I mean? Come on. And then secondly, our story should be characterized by hope. Do you know that the church is the carrier of hope because of the gospel message? Do you know that? In India, there are 2 to 3% Christians in India. And yet, Indian Christians provide a fifth of the health care in India. And yet, there's only 2 to 3% of them. Walk any country in Africa and you'll find people ministering to the poor and to the widows and the orphans, HIV, AIDS, uh, victims. The majority, of, or a great proportion of them, will be believers wherever you go. The AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, was started by a believer built on Christian principles. Anywhere in the world where you're going to find injustice, hopelessness, pain, you'll find the church in some way, shape or form. Do you know that? Because the church is the carrier of hope. Our story as an individual and as a community is about hope, isn't it? Anybody ever heard of the Orange Revolution? I'd never heard of it, all right? It happened in 2004 in the Ukraine. You all knew that, didn't you? You may remember, if you can scroll back through your memory, there was an election in the Ukraine that was very controversial. The sitting government was very corrupt. A challenger called Viktor Yushchenko came on the scene. When it came to the election, I mean, this guy Yushchenko, the challenger, had this mysterious illness that was like poison. That's how corrupt he, the, the situation he was living in. When they came up to the election, he had a 10-point lead over the sitting uh, pr- pr- premier. And yet, mysteriously and miraculously, he lost the election. And the story goes that what happened was that the state TV declared on the TV that the challenger, Yushchenko, had been defeated. And so they're declaring that the challenger has been defeated, so our president is the rightful president. It's all been done, you know, in, in the elections. And this is what happened. This is a true story. There's the big screen. In the bottom corner is, one, is someone interpreting for, for the hard of hearing, yeah? Sign, signing. And, and as she's listening to what she's supposed to translate, this is what she actually translated. Do not believe a word, he says. That's what this says. It's amazing, isn't it? Do not believe a word, he says. That's what, that's what she said. She said, Yushchenko won. He is the rightful, democratically elected president of this country. Don't believe a word he says. Now, of course, the only people that understood that were the people who were hard of hearing. And so across Ukraine, they all got on their phones and they started to text. That's what's called the Orange Revolution. They started to text all their friends and neighbours said, you never guess what? Don't believe him. Don't believe him. Don't believe him. And there was such a groundswell of opinion that it forced them to have another election and Yushchenko won. When I read that story, I thought, wow, isn't that a great picture of what the church is? Often in society, we're not the big screen. We're that little person in the corner. We're that little voice in the corner, pointing to what's being said and saying, do you know what? That ain't the truth. There's another way to live. There's another way to look at it. You see, the big screen tells our women and our men now that unless you look Unless you, you, you look beautiful and you're young and you're attractive and you're sexy, then you don't matter. But we say, that ain't the truth. Our society says, you know, when you get to a certain age, you're no longer valuable. But we say, actually, the truth is every person is made in the image of God and is valuable and has dignity and respect. And you see, our, the big screen tells us that you'll be happy when you get more stuff. 
But we say, no, 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 because you could gain the whole world and you'll lose your soul. See what I mean? We are the little bit in the corner of hope. That's the church, isn't it? That's the church. That's our lives as individuals. And it's our lives as a community of people. Final thing I want to say is that our life story must carry the hallmark of love. Look in 1 Corinthians 13. We love this chapter. Everybody at a wedding gets it read. It's not really a wedding chapter, really. You know, Paul says it. It's beautiful language. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. To understand that, you have to understand that in Corinth at the time, they were so obsessed with speaking in tongues, historians tell us and scholars, that they used to have speaking in tongue competitions, all right, in the church to see who was the best speaker in tongue person. And Paul comes along and he's not saying don't speak in tongues because clearly in other parts of the Bible he said, do, because I do and it'd be great if everyone does. But he says, listen, you can speak in tongues as much as you like if you don't have love. Just a clonging, clanging, horrible sound. Love's everything. And he goes on, if I have the gift of prophecy, let me just say a little word here. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here at 11 o'clock, right at the end of the service, George Schneiman, who was speaking, started to pray and he started to prophesy something for us as a church. And I know some of the phrases he used were a little alarming for some of you. We've transcribed that and we're praying that through and thinking on that as elders at the moment. We did it on Wednesday night and we will come back to you because that's what the Bible teaches uh, we will weigh that and test that and see what we feel God may or may not be saying in that and we'll speak that back to you in due course. But Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, in other words, if I'm incredibly intelligent and can communicate intelligently, but I don't have love, then it's just meaningless. Then he said, if I have the faith that could move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Listen, if I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames but have not love, nothing. You see, the greatest is love, isn't it? And I want to ask you a question. I'm asking me, listen, I don't love enough. I don't know about you. You might do. I don't love enough. I don't love enough when I'm under pressure and under stress. I don't love enough when people hurt me or get in my way. I don't love enough with people I don't like or think or think don't like me. I don't love enough when I'm trying to deal with pain and people are silly. I don't love enough. And I want to, don't you? Because the Bible says that our story should be marked by passionate faith, by life-giving hope, and by extravagant love. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians right at the end in the message, but for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Isn't that a great phrase? Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Let me just read one more thing out of a book and then we're winding up. There's another book I've read. <laughs> what Good is God by Philip Yancey. And he, he tells this, says this in this uh, book. He says, recently I've been reading a historical study by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. And he says this, a sociologist of religion, Stark investigated the success of the early church which starting from a few thousand followers grew to encompass half the population of the Roman Empire in three centuries. This is what he says, listen. In the midst of a hostile environment, the Christians simply acted on their beliefs. 
There's something there, isn't there? They simply did what they said they believed. I wonder how different our church and our community and our world would be if we and if me, if I, acted on what I said I believed. <laughs> Going against the majority culture, they treated slaves as human beings, often liberating them. They elevated women to positions of leadership. When an ap- epidemic hit their towns, they stayed behind to nurse the sick. They refused to participate in common practices such as abortion and infanticide. They responded to persecution as martyrs and not as terrorists. And listen to this, because this is prophetic. And when Roman social networks disintegrated, the church stepped in. Amen? When social networks disintegrated, the church stepped in. I want you to pray for me and for Janet. On Friday coming up, this Friday morning at I think 10.30, we have a meeting with uh, a counsellor and uh, with a head of social care for the borough. They've come to us and said, listen... You know, things are changing. You know, we're struggling in different areas. We need more help from the church. We want to come and talk to you about how you as a church can be more involved. See, when Roman social networks disintegrated, the church stepped in. Because that's faith, isn't it? And that's love in action. And then it says this, Even one of their pagan critics had to acknowledge that early Christians loved their neighbours as if they were their own family. I want my story to fit in this book, don't you? I want my life to fit in here. I don't know whether I'll lose my life for that. I don't know whether that will happen or not. It's a possibility for all of us. Who knows? But if it doesn't, I still want my life story to fit in here because I want it to be marked by faith and by hope and by love. And there's power in story and there's beauty in story. And I want to challenge you this morning. Whose story is really shaping your life right now? Do you say, we say we believe in God but we can live like he doesn't exist. Whose story is shaping your life? I want to ask the band to come back. There are two groups of people that I believe, as I've been praying, are here today. Group number one, please listen, because this is what God wants to say to you, I believe. Group number one, you've let the story of your past shape and determine your future, and it will shape and determine your present unless you do something about it. In other words, you, you, you're, like, you're trapped in this story about the past. What's happened to you? What you've done or what's been done to you? And all the time, God is coming to you and saying, listen, that's the past. I've got a new story for you. I want to draw a line under that. You have a new story. You have a new future. You have a new hope. And I believe that God has brought you here today because He wants to say that to you and He wants to do something. He wants you to close that chapter from the past and to open the page to a new story for you. But then there's a second group of people, perhaps many of us, And we have lived a story that's marked by faith, hope and love. But now, we're a bit lukewarm. We've allowed the three gods of our age to shape us and to mould us. And we ain't living passionate faith, life-giving hope, extravagant love any longer. And we really want to. And the answer for either of you, if you're in either of those groups, is the same. The answer is Jesus. The answer is to let Jesus love you with his passion. The answer is to fall in love with Jesus again. The answer is to be loved by an extravagant God. When I was out in the States, there was a song that was sung, I think, about four times. I sang it in a church. I sang it in different conferences. It's like the song of the moment that was going around America. And when I heard the song first, if I'm honest, I didn't really like it. 
the language is very poetic, it's very arty, and, and it's quite, I just didn't quite engage, and it's quite a difficult song to sing as well. But as I listened to it a few times, and as God worked on me, and as I saw the guy who wrote the song and heard the story behind the song, it, I've totally changed in how I view this song. You see, when I heard the song, I heard a band called the David Crowder Band who released it on an album. They released it worldwide. They're quite a famous Christian band. They didn't write the song. I thought they did, but they didn't. A guy called John Mark McMillan wrote the song. Very earthy kind of cowboy kind of character over in the States. And he tells the story. You can see it on YouTube. If you look at How He Loves You, the story, you can see him tell the story in five minutes about how seven years ago, uh, a whole group of friends uh, of his were in a car accident and he heard that night that one, his best friend was killed in that accident. And he tells the story on camera. It's very moving. He says, and I was, the lyrics for this song, these songs that kept coming through that time, he says, and I was trying to process why God would let that happen. And I was trying to process my grief and my pain and my resentment and my loss. And through that, God was getting through to me to say, I love you, even with all that stuff. Don't shut, God was saying, don't shut me out. In your times of grief and pain and resentment. That's the time when I want to be really close to you. And out of that, these lyrics came about a God who loves us when it isn't all sanitized. And when it isn't all nice. And when it isn't all in order. And when it isn't all happy. But he loves us anyway. And a God who hangs with us when we've got anger. When we've got questions at God. When we've got resentment and we've got frustration. And we don't even know whether we believe in God anymore. God believes in us and God still loves us. And I want to say to you, there's a growing trend in believers to when they're going through tough times, to step back from faith, to stop going to church because they're going through tough times. It's the wrong decision. It's the wrong choice. And God says to us, in your time of sorrow, in your time of frustration, I'll hang with you. I'll be with you. And I will love you through it all. Listen to some of the words. He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, and I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory and I realize how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And then the second verse said, we are his portion, he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. That beautiful line. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And so heaven meets earth and the version I've heard says, and heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. That's all right. That's quite nice, but it's quite safe. It's not the original. See, when David Crowderband released it, they thought the audience won't really go for that. So they changed the line. So heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. Do you know what it really is? So heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. I can see some of you men struggling with that straight away. Whoa. And I thought that, and I thought, ooh, I hate that's horrible. And yet, you know, the last time I sang this song, I was in, a, in a, an arena in Atlanta. And I'd just been thinking a lot about like my dad and about life and stuff like that. And we just stood and we sang this song. And something happened inside of me where I just broke. And it hasn't happened to me in a long time where I thought, God, I don't understand all that you do, but I know you love me. Like a sloppy wet kiss. It's primal. It's not sanitized. It's not safe. It's raw. It's mixed up with anger. It's mixed up with resentment. It's mixed up with confusion. But it's real. It's real. Do you love me like that? God, you love me so much. 
And I just lifted my arms and screamed at the top of my voice, thank you, God, that you love me. And I want to say to you this morning, God loves you. Do you know that? He has brought you here for a reason. And whether, whether you have let the past shape you, your story shape you, or whether you right now are saying, do you know what, I'm lukewarm right now. I'm lukewarm right now. The answer is the same. The answer is to let this God love you like a sloppy wet kiss. And what we're going to do is, I've asked Lee and the band to sing this song to us. And it is a difficult song to catch on to a little bit. But just don't worry about singing. Just listen to the words. And if you feel you want to, then just kind of enter in and then I'll come back. God loves you. Do you know that? God loves you.